1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from uh, France, we have Marcus Evans, who's a partner in the Frankfurt office of KPMG. And we also have a segment from our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan in New York. This week, we'll be discussing the results of the European stress tests on the banking system. Also, a look at the UK banking system in the light of results from Lloyds, among others, and latest developments in the PPI mis-selling scandal. And finally, a word from Ben McClanahan, who's been talking to Doug Landy, a partner in the New York office of law firm Millbank Tweed Hadley & McCloy, about US banking regulation, in particular the Dodd-Frank Act. First, though, to those developments in the European banking stress tests. As I say, we're joined by Marcus Evans. Marcus, thank you very much for joining us from KPMG and from your holiday in France, I gather. Give us a first take, really, or impression of what these stress tests showed, because it's quite difficult to interpret in some ways because there was no pass-fail this time around, but there were some obviously weak banks. So I think the
2: first thing that the stress test results show us is a better capitalised banking system. So the starting point CET1 capital um, is 13.2%, which is around 200 basis points higher than in 2014, and around 400 basis points higher than for the stress test exercise in 2012. But the second thing they show is a bigger impact from the adverse scenario. So CET1 capital falls by about 380 basis points this time around, compared with about 250 basis points at the end of the comprehensive assessment. And where does that impact come from? Well, around 55% of the impact comes from cumulative credit losses, and the remainder comes from operational risk, which includes conduct risk for the first time, and then around 15% of the impact each from market risk and from cumulative P&L losses over the 2016 to 2018 period, which are included in the stress test.
1: Do you think, I mean, you mentioned there that the impact of the stress scenarios this time is that much more acute. Is that because the stresses are themselves tougher or because the banks are more vulnerable to things like non-performing loans and so on?
2: That's an interesting question. I think if you look at the macro scenarios, and obviously we have just lined them up, um, 2014 against 2016, the harsher assumptions are pretty much netted out by some other slightly softer assumptions. So I think that the macro scenario is really a zero-sum game. What you have, though, on top of that is some tightening of the methodology. So you're not allowed to pass on any increases in your funding costs to the asset side of your balance sheet. You're also not allowed to diminish the size of your balance sheet, a static balance sheet assumption. And you're not allowed to have flaws for market risk, which are below the experience of the last few years. And cumulatively, those methodological components have given a much higher CET1 impact in certain countries, and it may not only be the countries that you expect. So actually, on an average basis, despite Monte de Paschi having taken the headlines, Italy only has an average impact on CET1 from the downside case, whereas it's actually in Ireland, the Netherlands and Germany that those points of methodology come together to give you the biggest
1: CET1 impact. <laughs> Now you mentioned there are a few of the the obvious victims, if you like, of the stress test. So Italian banks were the, the most, Monte di Paschi being the the worst performer overall, being being the most obviously badly affected. But German banks, Irish banks were also pretty hard hit. And then I think it's fair to say that over the past couple of days of market response, there has been growing nervousness in the sector. A lot of bank shares off steeply on Monday and and again on Tuesday, not only in Italy. Does that mean that this exercise has been a success or is it just completely failed to reassure investors that the European banking system is robust, as did the, uh, the exercise sought to do?
2: Without wanting to dig at the EBA in any way, but there were a number of things that were not in force when they developed the methodology for the stress test, but which either have come or will come um, in the next couple of years and which the markets are cognizant of. One of those things, starting as an accountant, is IFRS 9, so that's moving from an incurred loss provisioning model to an expected loss provisioning model, and that is likely to increase credit provisions across the system from the 1st of January 2018 when it comes into effect, although there are few reliable sources on on the exact quantum of impact that will have. Um, One thing is the impact of of negative interest rates and the further fall in the yield curve, and obviously Brexit is, is part of that story. Then you've got the finalization of Basel III, as the ECB calls it, or Basel IV, as some people um, like to call it. So you've got um, new standardized approaches around capital. You've got constraints on the use of internal models. And all of that adds up to an inflation in risk-weighted assets and therefore in banks' future capital requirements. And then on top of that, you've got um, something called MREL, so the Minimum Requirement for Eligible Liabilities which is the European standard for bail-in securities. Now, that's still being finalised, and banks have yet to issue those securities and to pay the cost of issuing and of paying the coupon uh, on those bonds. And all of that, I think, will complicate an already difficult um, profitability context for European banks. And I think the markets look at that future position as well as the slightly more snapshot position provided by the stress test starting point.
1: Well, Let me come to you, Laura, for a review on, on that broader kind of outlook for the European banks. Do you agree with Marcus that the stress test essentially underestimated some of the impacts that are going to come through? And I suppose another reason why the market might be nervous uh, now is we've had a few results from some of the uh, the weaker European banks that don't look particularly pretty.
3: Um, Yeah, I guess I'll come to your second point first, just um, while you have it there. So in terms of the European earnings rating, it's actually been pretty good. I mean, with the exception of the German banks, Deutsche and Commerzbank and some of the Spanish banks and DNB, actually most of the other European banks actually all beat earnings expectations so far. So the earnings quarter hasn't been too bad from an earnings perspective. People are a bit concerned about how kind of cautious bank chief executives and bank CFOs are sounding about the outlook. And certainly that is something which is going to wear on the share prices When you think about why people didn't breathe a huge sigh of relief after the the tests at at the weekend, I mean, there's a couple of different things coming into play. As Marcus said, there are a lot of factors which just didn't get added into the mix. There's also the fact that some of the weakest Eurozone banking centres were actually omitted from the tests entirely. So people are saying, why aren't we hearing more about the Greeks, about the Portuguese, about the Cypriots? They weren't in the tests at all. So the tests do a certain amount. But I think they've probably done more harm than good in, in the sense that they have raised ad- additional concerns about some banks which really didn't do well under, under this kind of methodology in particular. But those banks argue that their actual experiences are going to be very different than what was actually modelled in the stress test because there are always going to be various quirks. And it's always a very difficult thing because when you look at the banks across all of these countries, it's very hard to apply something which is so standard and so uniform across them all because they do all have some very different underlying influencers of their performance. So all in all, I don't think that it has done the market much good, really.
2: Marcus, a final word from you,
1: more harm than good?
2: No, I think, I think they've still given us some comfort in the, the overall capitalisation level, just to, just to play devil's advocate. Having said that, as Laura has said, and I completely agree, um, the markets have got a lot more in view than, than only the stress test.
1: Thank you, Marcus Evans from KPMG. So on to our second topic. Emma, you have been looking at some of the UK bank results, uh, Lloyd's in particular. And then on top of that, we've got extra news today about the PPI scandal. Interesting, obviously, Lloyd's... Uh, has long been seen as the the most associated bank with PPI. They sold the most policies of the biggest bank, biggest high street bank. Uh, and among their results, which uh, I'll let you talk about in a second, they interestingly didn't take any PPI provisions for the first time in a long time, I think this, this last quarter. Uh, give us the big picture anyway.
4: That's right. So Lloyd's posted... Uh... A doubling of pre-tax profits um, in the first half compared to the same period last year of about £2.5 billion. And actually, this was largely due to the fact that it didn't take any provision for payment protection insurance mis-selling in the first half of the year. Um, The last time it took a provision was at the end of last year. And that's because the bank was expecting the Financial Conduct Authority to impose a two-year time deadline from this summer Therefore, it had modelled the amount that it would expect to pay out for compensation based on that deadline. However, today it's emerged that the FCA, while pushing, wanting to push ahead with this deadline, it said that it will be delayed and will likely come into force next summer. And therefore, this pushes out the deadline for an extra year to June 2019. As a result, a lot of the UK banks could now face higher costs for payment protection insurance because they'll need to set aside more given this extra period in which consumers can claim.
1: What does that mean for Lloyds going forward in particular and, I guess, all the other banks?
4: Well, some analysts are suggesting that the impact of this uh, extra year in which consumers can claim will cost the banks potentially a few hundred million pounds each. But Lloyds, as you say, being the biggest lender and therefore selling the most payment protection insurance, could face setting aside Up to an extra £1 billion. However, this is modelled on um, Lloyd's receiving about 10,000 mis-selling claims a week, and this in fact has dropped recently to about 6,700 claims a week. So, in fact, it might be the case that Lloyd's doesn't need to set aside quite as much as £1 billion. But either way, this will continue uh, the UK's costliest mis-selling debacle and means that it will further eat into profits at a time when they're already coming under pressure from lower for longer interest rates and, dare I say, a slower economic environment post-Brexit.
1: Absolutely. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. Thank you, Emma. Let's go now to Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been speaking to Doug Landy, who's a partner in the New York office of law firm Millbank Tweed, Hadley and McCloy. He's been talking about banking regulation, the Dodd-Frank Act in particular, which has just turned six years old. And Ben began by asking him how, when you're on, the banks are getting used to the Volcker Rule, which is designed to curb big banks' use of their own capital for proprietary trading.
5: Well, I think they're getting used to it just fine. I mean, Volcker is one year into its effective date. Volcker is uh, the provision that keeps banks from using their own money to proprietary trade or invest in covered funds, um, which was intended to keep them from doing indirectly what they can't do directly, Mm -hmm. which is invest in, in funds that engage in proprietary trading or do similar things, keeping their own money safe at home. Uh, I think banks have generally come to terms with it. They don't want to uh, put the time and effort into spending all the money to uh, compliance with it. But in general, I think they've you know basically made their peace with it at this point. Mm-hmm. All banks are required to have an effective compliance regime in place for it, and they largely have done so. What has left to be done are, are basically two things – Um, The Fed, which is the agency that uh, is charged with making sure that they are largely in compliance at this point, has just granted banks a one-year extension on the final compliance date, which allows them to take one more year to put in place, um, getting rid of their legacy covered Mm -hmm. funds. Um, That'll run through next July 21st uh, of 2017. And that's just for covered funds that banks were invested in before Volcker went into effect, uh, a very small subset. And and lastly, for for funds that a very even smaller subset, there'll be uh, ultimately potentially an extra five years that was in the statute that banks will be allowed to hold on to a very small set.
6: Looking at some of the second quarter figures uh, for the, for the big investment banks. Uh, they all uh, recorded falls year on year in their value at risk. That's a a daily measure of the maximum losses on any particular given day. Uh, Is this what Volcker was designed to achieve?
5: Pretty much. I think Volcker, uh, as you pointed out, was designed to keep banks from engaging in speculative trading with their own monies. Um, VAR is a measure of how they are trading. Um, uh, You know, it's hard to separate out whether Banks are not speculating with their own money or the markets themselves are less speculative in general. However, I think the feeling is that Volcker has pulled banks out of those markets and banks are such large traders in those markets that it's probably capturing both those effects at the same time. Mm But generally, the feeling is, to the extent banks were engaged in proprietary trading, they're definitely not doing it anymore.
6: Is the risk simply shifted to another set of actors, such as Citadel, who aren't subject to these laws?
5: Well, um, there were a a set of um, sales of proprietary desks from certain banks to the Citadels and the funds of the world um, before Volcker went into effect. So there was certainly um, a movement of, of trading books. Um, but I think also, you know, more broadly, the business has definitely moved from the banking industry to the funds and the non-regulated industries as well.
6: So if the banks are broadly getting to grips with that Dodd-Frank six years on, uh, what, what's really bothering them? When they come to see you, when you go to see them, uh, what, what's top of, top of their mind?
5: Well, the banks are very worried now about being able to make certain return on equity targets. Right. That's pretty much all they mentioned at this point. They're concerned about um, meeting equity targets, being able to raise capital when they need to. Um, and what's driving that is, uh, you know, following Dodd-Frank, the G20 and the U.S. regulators have put in place um, a system of increasing equity capital requirements. Yeah. The desire is to make the banks safer by having the banks hold more equity capital, The feeling being prior to the last financial crisis, the banks were undercapitalized. Um, Globally, the banks are now more capitalized, better capitalized. In the United States, the banks are increasingly better capitalized, which makes the banks much stronger and more resilient to handle the next financial crisis. However, holding more equity makes it harder to return a better return on equity for investors. Mm -hmm. As these requirements, which are being phased in, come into effect, the banks are finding it increasingly difficult in a competitive world to return a good return on equity. And this is what they're talking about. Right and now. a good return on equity being what? Double digits? Double digits, definitely. I But think there's his- only
6: one bank, as far as I know, that's um, projected to achieve a double-digit return on equity this year amongst the big six U.S. banks, and that's Wells Fargo. The rest are going to fall short.
5: Well, I think historically banks were, were able to achieve double-digit returns on equity. I think they'd like to do that you know, over a broad period, you know, certainly, you know, any one particular quarter, year, you know, who knows what's going on. Yeah. But but I think looking at sort of the, the business, looking at what's coming in the next few years um, in terms of the regulatory environment and the expectations of the regulators as to how much equity the banks will need to generate and looking at the banks and what they perhaps feel their investors will demand in terms of a return, Adding those things up, I think the banks feel that they're going to be very squeezed and they want to make sure that they're deploying their capital into the right activities and business lines where they can generate
6: an appropriate return. Right. So, does that necessarily imply more shrinkage for the likes of Citigroup or Bank of America that are falling well short of their targets? Well, I think every
5: bank's going to take a hard line look. What are they spending their money on, both in terms of investing and in terms of expenses? And I think we're certainly seeing that this year as as banks look at their expense lines. But I think over, you know, looking in the reverse over the last couple of years, banks have certainly been judging which activities they're engaging in. And this goes for not only the big U.S. banks, but certainly the big European and other banks in this country. Um, where are they going to deploy their capital? Where can we generate an appropriate return? That will
6: increasingly become a challenging exercise over the next couple of years. Right. And meantime, as the regulators, as you say, keep ratcheting up uh, these um, extra charges for, for for capital for the biggest banks, do they necessarily care that the banks aren't coming up to scratch on their returns targets? Does an 8% return on equity look attractive in, in the context of the desire by regulators to, to create more utility like banks?
5: Well, I'd never speak for the regulators, but certainly the banks are. Are speaking to the regulators, and in the in their comments in publicly available documents, one can see that they are making these arguments to the regulators um, and certainly in conferences and speeches, the regulators are hearing these things, um, so we will see whether you know these are things that they are taking into account when they are responding
6: right and finally the um political uh, picture is unlikely to get much better, judging by the uh, recent conventions by the Democratic Party and also the Republicans. Uh, Noteworthy that um, both platforms contain negative language on the banks. There's an explicit call for reviewing Glass-Steagall from from both the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, Does that mean that um, the future for the big banks, whatever happens after November, is unlikely to involve much uh, relief on the regulation side?
5: Well, I guess negative is always in the eyes of the beholder, right? But... (laughs) But it is interesting that you see both political parties lining up with the words Glass-Steagall in, right. their, in their platforms. Um, that, that is very unusual, I think, in, in the last certainly 20 years in, in U.S. politics. Normally, one would see one party calling for more regulation of the banks and the other party calling for less regulation of the banks. If you look closely at the platforms, you kind of can squint and still see that. With one party, the Republicans calling for a repeal of Dodd-Frank. Um, The other party, the Democrats, saying that Dodd-Frank is working and calling for what they call a modernization of Glass-Steagall, which um, in essence calls for more regulation of the shadow banking um, community, which is really of the hedge funds and certain asset managers. What the Republicans have done is say, well, to repeal Dodd-Frank, but then reinstate Glass-Steagall which um, is a surprising position, but may be interpreted as saying, let's unregulate the banks to a large extent, the larger banks, but limit their size. So perhaps invoke a less uh, regulated environment with a lot more smaller banks and just let them compete against each other, which is an interesting proposal, but not one certainly that's been sort of well thought out or well played out in in their platform.
6: Doug Landy, thank you very much for joining me.
5: Well, that's
1: it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Emma here in the studio, our guest from KPMG, Marcus Evans, and also uh, Ben and his guest in New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at FD.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber and Amy Keane Until next week, goodbye.